Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We will not be on the air tomorrow because there's football all day long on Sports Radio 610. So everybody off from radio perspective tomorrow. Players will get their uh, practice time in the morning and then get with families, friends. If you have Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving, family Thanksgiving, however you're going to do it. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter. So thankful for the opportunity that I have, that we have, to bring you Houston Texans football uh, on game day all throughout the year. Um, It is just an absolute joy to be a member of this organization, uh, to be a member of this fan base, and to have you guys as fans and followers and listeners. And obviously, even the critics, uh, I know... There are some of you out there, but we thank all of you um, because without you, none of this is possible. So happy Thanksgiving, and we've got a jam-packed Wednesday show because it is Thanksgiving tomorrow. So we're going to hear from Ethan Greenberg, who covers the Jets for Jets.com. He is a senior reporter there for the New York Jets, so we'll get an opportunity to dive in. It's a team we haven't seen in three years. It's a team that's monumentally different from three years ago. And the last time they came to NRG Stadium was six years ago. And Bitsy was one year removed from being the Texans quarterback. He was the Jets quarterback that day. So it's been a while. And we've only seen them a couple of times in the last uh, six years. So looking forward to seeing the Jets. And Ethan Greenberg is going to give us the skinny on a team that's fairly beat up at some key positions. In particular, running back. And, well, there's news at quarterback. And we'll get to that a little bit later in this segment we're also going to do a Wednesday where are they now with former cornerback slash safety turned pro bowl safety when he went to Detroit Glover Quinn now he should have been a pro bowler when he was here in Houston but Glover Quinn is going to join Drew Doherty for a very healthy where are they now in the second segment so that's going to be a That's going to be a really fun time, so I can't wait to hear what Glover's got to say about what he's doing now, looking back on his time with the Texans. That's going to be a good, long, actually, a couple of segments there to hear from Glover Quinn, so that's going to be fun stuff. And then, obviously, we'll go around the league and make sure that we've got everything covered from a league perspective. But it's Wednesday, and that means General Manager Nick Casario is going to start us off, and you definitely want to hang around to hear what Nick's Thanksgiving meal is. And let's just say that he might as well have just poked my eyeballs out with a fork. You'll hear my somewhat disdain for his his Thanksgiving meal. And it wasn't so much the Thanksgiving meal. It's just the, the ease and the comfort with which he said it. And he just made it sound like it was like, yeah, it's normal. Like, um, okay. So you'll hear in a little bit. And by the way, hashtag I love Cool Whip. Here's Nick Casario. Joining us right now on Texans Radio, it's Texans General Manager Nick Casario. Nick, congratulations on the win. Before we move on to next week, uh, what did you think? The performance in the conditions, getting the takeaways, getting the victory. Yeah, sure. It's it's always good to win. It's hard to win in this league. So it's a credit to the players and the coaches. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into each week. Um, the preparation and ultimately comes down to your execution on Sunday. And, you know, fortunately we were able to do more than the, uh, the Titans did on Sunday. Um, did some good things, you know, created the takeaways, took care of the football offensively, took advantage of a couple plays in a red area, 
Um, controlled field position. I mean, Cam probably had one of his better punting games. So, I mean, I think he's fourth or fifth in a league in net punting. So the ability to kind of control field position, keep the team down there. So, and we made enough plays in the end. So, and that's the most important thing. So, you know, flip the page and, and get ready for another challenge this week with the Jets. But it will certainly be different than what we saw from the Titans. Nick, when you unfortunately lose eight in a row, I would imagine you start to question everything. How do you get through adversity? How through this eight, nine-week span, how did you get through it? Because you obviously are not used to having losses at all. I mean, you've been on the other side of this. But how how did you get through it from a day-to-day perspective to get through a tough time like that? Yeah, no, it's an interesting thought. I'd say the most important thing is try to be consistent each week. Um, understand that each week's its own entity. There's going to be some ups and downs that you have to deal with. So just try to stay as consistent as possible and just stick to your routine, stay true to your process, and – you know, the the wins and losses, you know, whatever the record is, that's what the record is. But, you know, you just try to go through each week and, you know, evaluate the game and just have an understanding of what took place and what happened. And then just go to the next week and, you know, try to make some adjustments as you go. So when you're not winning games, you know, everybody kind of gets caught up in that. But I would say just from a philosophical, from an overall thought process, mindset standpoint, coming to the building each day, it really didn't change, yeah. you know, from each week to the you know, to the next. And a lot of that, too, is a credit to the coaches and, you know, David and his perspective and just how, kind of how he handles the team. And Tyrod, out of rhythm against Miami, wasn't his best day, obviously. But he bounces back with that performance and wills the team into the end zone a couple of times. What about that performance from your quarterback? Yeah, he did a nice job. The most important job for the quarterback is to run the offense and take care of the football. So when you look at those two criteria, then then he did well in those areas. And collectively as a team, we were, again, we were able to do enough on, on all three phases. So that's the most important thing. So Ty works really hard. He takes a lot of pride in what he does, and he cares a lot. And it shows, and his teammates and the team overall have a lot of respect and appreciation you know, for what he does. So to be able to go out there, and I would say – those are as hard of conditions as any for a quarterback, regardless of who you are to throw. I mean, Ryan had to deal with it on their side, and we had to deal with it on our side. So, in the end, it's about doing more than the other team, and as a team, we were able to do that. Okay, you mentioned it, so I'm going to go there. Everybody has a weather game they remember. Like, that's just, oh, man. That's pretty close for me. What's a weather game that you absolutely remember that was maybe worse than that one? Is there a weather game you could think of? I mean, played New England. Uh, you were in yeah, New England. There's love up there. I'll give you one. So actually, it was against the, uh, was it against the Titans? Yeah, I think it was October, end of October. You know, before you would think, then the 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 field was horrendous. 09? I mean, it was, I think it was oh yeah. nine, and it's the field was warm. Once you go out there, there's nothing on the field. Then you got this sleet and the ice. And then all of a sudden the field's covered in snow. And, you know, let's say I think Arizona went through that as well. We had a couple instances where the, the weather changed, like, yeah. in a heartbeat. And I'd say the other game that <laughs> comes to mind, we were playing Cincinnati in, uh, let's see, this would have been 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. So we have the ball at the end of the game, two-minute situation. I think we were down by a field goal or had to go down and score some points. So it had been overcast for most of the game. So we get the ball with, I mean, a minute-ish in – it was literally like a typhoon came through. So we're trying to run a two-minute <laughs> offense in the middle of a typhoon, and you're like, all right, holy cow, this is going to be hard. So yeah. in the end, they, we, we couldn't move the ball, and they ended up winning. So, Do you keep track when you're evaluating guys of how they play in certain conditions like that? Because some guys handle it better than others, and maybe it's a shoe thing at that particular moment or whatever, but the Texans handled it well, and it seems like Taylor's misses were, oh, it's too bad he missed the throw, but it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't like he threw interceptions on Sunday. Yeah. 
depending on the position, you can evaluate those things when you're evaluating players in college. Like, how do they deal with the elements? Do they play more in – I mean, it's true. They play more in warm weather climates mm-hmm. versus cold weather climate. What's your climate going to be like? And how they handle those circumstances, situations as a team. You, if you're outside practicing, you know, practicing in those conditions, you kind of instill a mindset and a thought process. Like, are we've dealt with it. We've practiced in it. And in the end, it's not about the weather. It's about what do we need to do to go out there and execute. You can't get caught up in how much wind or rainfall because there's going to be wind, there's going to be rain, there's going to be a myriad of different things. You can't get too caught up in that. You're not playing the weather, you're playing the opponent, but you just have to have an understanding of the conditions and realize that both teams are going to be restricted in terms of what they can do from an execution standpoint. Thankfully, thankfully, there's a roof here. We don't have to worry about it on Sunday, but we do have to worry about the Jets, Nick. And I think with the Jets, I mean, I, you know, Elijah Moore is unbelievable, but it obviously starts at the quarterback position where they have three different guys. They've got the aging veteran in Joe Flacco. They've got Mike, who's been kind of around, kind of kicking it around, but has some talent. And then they've got the young Nubian, Zach Wilson. Don't know which of those three you end up seeing. How does that change the preparation for this week, if at all? The fact that they are similar, but there are some differences amongst, especially Zach Wilson, who can move a little bit. Yeah, really, it goes back to understanding the program and the philosophy of how they want to play. So you look at, let's start with the, from the team-building standpoint. So Joe Douglas, the general manager, the things that he believes in, they've done a good job with the draft. They say they drafted a number of young players both this year and last year that are yep. probably going to be good players for a long time. Understanding what Coach Sala wants to do, how he wants to play, very aggressive coach. They play hard. They really compete. They play with a lot of effort. And then offensively, specific to what we're talking about with their quarterbacks, Michael Fleur is the offensive coordinator, so you have to understand like what's their system, how do they want to play, what are some of the things that are gonna that are gonna carry over regardless of who the quarterback is. So they've had multiple quarterbacks that have played this year, like you mentioned. They've all had success at different points, but when you watch them play, regardless of who the quarterback has been, they were productive with Zach, they were productive with Mike. You know, Joe played pretty good the other day against Miami. Um, their best player offensively, their two best players are probably more uh, among the two, but more than Michael Carter and Michael got hurt, who really, Michael had really done a really nice job for them kind of as a three down back. So another Offensive. rookie play. Off- Offensive player. Yeah, 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 there's Carter. two Michael Carter. Two Michael they have Michael, both Michael Carters have actually done a nice job. So, you know, the two backs, Carter and Johnson, they've gotten production from those players. They signed Corey Davis in free agency. He's really been a huge addition. I mean, you all saw that him for however many years now with the Titans. So, Corey Davis, Elijah Moore is going to be a really good player. He was a good player at Ole Miss, and he's done a nice job. I think he had his most productive game there the other day and drafted AVT in the first round. So they have a pretty good nucleus of young players, regardless of who the quarterback is, and the same thing defensively. So I think the one thing that stands out about their team defensively is their front four is the strength of their team. Like Those guys create a lot of problems, They create and they play them in waves too. So whether it's Q, whether it's Fatakasi, uh, Nate Shepard, they signed Rankins in free agency, JFM, like who has really done this yep. through the arc of his career. So their front presents a lot of problems. They got Mosley back, who's the quarterback of the defense, and they draft the other Michael Carter, who's yep. played slot corner for them, has given them some good plays. And then they've had, a, um, you know, other than Hall, you know, Bryce has kind of been consistent on the perimeter. And then, you know, they've played a bunch of guys in the perimeter, whether it was Eccles, Isaiah Dunn. So they've had, and then at safety, they've forced, have been forced to play some other guys as well. So, to a certain extent, they've had to deal with, let's say, some of the same things that we've had to deal with, and they've played well at different points, but they certainly can present some problems on each side of the ball. Nick, this time of year, when you're evaluating an opponent, you got a lot of video on them, and you have video on them against guys you've played. The Titans, Buffalo, Miami, they just took them on. 
So that's got to help in a sense, but it's more information than ever. You have a lot of stuff to go through. Yeah, at this point, you've played 10 regular season games. So, and, and some players have played more than others. Like AVT has played every snap. You know, he's been out there a lot. Moore's played a fair amount of snaps. There's other guys that have maybe played a little bit more as a result of injury, whether it's like Quinn and Williams, or, um, the linebacker, not Q, but the, the other Quincy Q. Williams, Quincy yeah. Williams, excuse me, a linebacker. And then Delshawn Phillips, like guys you really don't know about, yeah. but they've had the opportunity to play, whether it's defensively or kicking game. So to your point, Mark, you have X number of plays, let's call it five, 600 plays, or however many plays on each side of the ball, and then X number of plays in the kicking game that you can evaluate and see what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, how do they play. And then you have to look at certain opponents may have more relevance than others relative to how you play us, the Texans, how we play defense, so what have they done against similar types of defenses. So those are some of the things that you can kind of start to evaluate as you approach the game plan for that week. They're pretty interesting. They've got brothers, Quincy and Quinn and Williams, and then they've got two guys that are named Michael Carter that they just drafted not both related. out of the state that are not I'm related. I'm not looking forward to this as a play-by-play. Both Make sure your card is right, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, both out of, well, I mean, you can guess Michael Carter, but, uh, yeah, Michael Carter was, was fun at the, uh, the Senior Bowl, no doubt. Nick, the way that defensively you guys played against the Titans. Yeah, they got some yards, but Bowden at key times, fourth down stops. But I think one of the more underrated plays was the one right at the end of the half made by Ross Blacklock. When Tannehill threw that ball out of bounds, did you know, okay, that should be intentional grounding and it's a 10-second runoff. We're out of here without giving up points. Did you kind of – because I had I had to take it off so I, my headphones off so I could talk to David at halftime, so I didn't hear what was going on. Did you kind of know what was going on when he threw that ball out of bounds? Well, there's some timing elements that are involved when you get under two minutes at the end of the half. So I think there was nine seconds on the clock at the time. And when you saw the initial throw, there was a receiver in somewhat close proximity. Yeah. So you couldn't see whether or not it would actually be in. Was he in the pocket? Was he not in the pocket? Yeah. So really it was well played from our perspective. I and mean, Ross finished the play, finished the rush. He forced Ryan to get rid of the football. Didn't hit him late, you know, which is something I think came up even with JFM. He got called for a penalty against Miami. You know, just the whole contact on the quarterback, but smart play by Ross, and they threw it out of bounds, and then there was a lot of discussion about exactly what happened. So once Tony made the explanation yeah. about, okay, here's the foul, here's what happened, then okay, then we're out of the half, and then we're on to, you know, on to the second half. Nick, the record isn't what you want it to be, but something you set out to do in the offseason, and we've talked about this before a bit, but it's really come into play, is getting the ball away from the opponent. I mean, this is happening. You have back-to-back games with five takeaways each, and that's only the third time that's happened in the league in the last 10 years. You have a noticeable payback from something you worked so hard on in the offseason. That's got to be a gratifying thing to you. Yeah, really, from day one, it's something that Lovey has talked about and emphasized. So when you talk about and emphasize it, so it goes from the coordinators to the position coaches, then it goes from the coaches to the players, and the players start to see, okay, there's some there's some results that come along with it. And whether it's the technique, whether it's having vision of the ball, whether it's getting enough bodies to the ball, whether it's punching at the ball and stripping at the ball. So you have to work on those things, and you sort of train, I would say, your mind. You have to train the technique, and we saw a little bit of that in training camp. So it's kind of come in bunches here a little bit, to your point, over the last two weeks. I mean, I want to say it's a little bit extreme, but, I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. You know, whether or not we're going to get five turnovers each week, I mean, unlikely, but it just shows the importance of, creating turnovers or getting takeaways. I think we're tied for fourth in the league, you know, 19 and the teams ahead of us, New England, Indianapolis, Buffalo, who are arguably some of the better teams in the league. We just have have to do a better job offensively of taking care of the ball, which we were able to do in this game. So if we can continue to blend the two, 
keep the penalties down. There are certain other areas that we need to execute a little bit better, you know, offensively in a running game. Like we just have to find a way to create some more yards. So as we each step of the way continue to add and build, then if we see some improvement, then there might be some improvement on the scoreboard. But you can't necessarily worry about what's a score going to be at the end of the game. You just have to go through the game, play the game a certain way, do the things that are required of winning. And then if you put yourself in a position, in the end, it's going to come down to situational football in the fourth quarter, which it did in a Tennessee game. Nick, buy-in from players. I mean, it's something that we obviously talk about. We talk about the media. Are the players bought in? Are they bought in? And I, I was talking to Kamu a little bit, and I asked him about the Miami game. And I didn't bring, bring up the words buy-in, but how much did the, the performance by the defense in the Miami game sort of help the defense, if at all, give them, hey, we are doing the right things, man. We got to just keep chopping wood because we are doing the right things. Look at what happened. Look what we did today. Yeah, we didn't win the game. But as a unit, defensively, our play went up a significant notch. We're doing the right things. Let's just keep doing it. And, yeah, gave us some yards, but came up big at big times. Did you sense that Miami game for this defense was maybe, I don't want to say a turning point, but an answer of validation in some sense that, yeah, this can be done? It's really never about one game. I'd say the belief and the mindset and the overall thought process and intentionality have been there from the beginning, and we've seen it from the beginning of the season up until this point. So, Really, this league is about doing things consistently week after week at a high level, and if you don't do them at a high enough level, then you're going to come up on the short end of the stick. But I think the system, once everybody understands the system, how we wanted to play, here's how we're going to play, we're going to have to deal with some things along the way, You know, whether it's handle a certain run this way, limit the big plays. I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about that much, we've limited the big plays defensively, so when you force the team to move the ball – they have to run more plays. So instead of running two or three plays and then getting a score, eight, 10, 12 plays, it requires that team, you know, ourselves offensively to execute plays, play after play, down after down. And if you can force the team to do that from our defensive perspective, force their offense to do that, then there's an opportunity potentially right. to create a negative play. And the players have done that from the beginning. They've, they believe in what we're doing. They believe in each other, which is the most important thing. And it comes down to performance. So you just have to be able to go out there and trust yourself as a player and to perform at a high enough level. And if, if more people do it, then you play better team defense. It's the same thing offensively. If more people do the right thing offensively, then you're going to be able to move the ball and score points, which this is what, that's what this game is all about. All right, organization sort of question here. And Johnny asked Coach yesterday about the holidays being somewhat of a distraction potentially. And I remember interviewing college coaches, having to ask them, is school a distraction? (laughs) But we don't have to go there with this. It's a professional football team. But what about holidays, families? It's all important in people's lives, Nick, yet you have the business of football going on. How do you handle these? Yeah, you have to have an understanding. All of us have a job to do, but – it's important to take time for the people that matter most in our lives and, and it, to enjoy the, those opportunities to spend some time together, to take your mind for a, a few hours away from football, but also understand when you come back, we have to recalibrate and they're not going to switch a schedule. Like we have to go out there and play a game on Sunday. So like nobody cares. It's the holidays. I mean, the holidays are great. We all love the food, the, the family and the time that we get together, but ultimately we have to come back and refocus and get ourselves ready to play on Sunday you know, because if we're not prepared physically and mentally, then we're going to put ourselves in a tough spot against the Jets. Did you like Thanksgiving games? I know we don't have one this year. I know we had one last year. Did you like playing a game on Thanksgiving? Yeah, we had a few Thanksgiving games. Yeah. And you know what? It's a little bit like the whole Thursday night when you play on Thursday yeah. night. Yeah. So the hard part is, is you just flip the page and you're 
especially around the holidays, you're away from your family. Yeah. But, you know, you have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday where you mm-hmm. can maybe spend a little more time together and, and take advantage of opportunities. So really, our thought, my thought process, whenever, wherever, whoever it is, we'll be ready to go. And, you know, if it's on Thursday, it's on Thursday. I get the players like because they get the, the, the turkey leg or whatever if we win the game and they're the player of the game. <laughs> well, this was supposed to be the Nick Casario Thanksgiving special with uh, your complete menu we laid out. We already did that upstairs with Killens. We did that already. Yeah. Oh, we missed. Bit... We, oh, yeah, yeah. We, did, we, did, yeah, we did get that. So, but no, this is legit food holiday. Yeah. Legit. Right, what are you so, going to ask me what I eat on Thanksgiving? Of course we are. Is it tofurkey? No, just kidding. No. But, no, I came up with a menu. I texted Omar. I can't, I can't say that in the air, though. No, we actually – Oh, so usually what we do, it's just the five of us, just our, uh, my, my wife and our three girls and our dog. And sometimes we have, whether it's uh, my wife's mother, you know, if she's able to do it. But we kind of do our own Thanksgiving dinner. And our oldest is very involved in the, I would say, preparation of the food – um, setting the table, and we have our own little traditions. But my, I'm basic turkey, cranberries, and a little salad, and then some butternut squash soup. Oh. That's about the extent of it. <laughs> okay, hold you on. can have the stuffing and <laughs> oh, everything. Did you just say basic turkey, cranberry, and salad? <laughs> salad and some butternut squash <laughs> Those soup. Those words did not okay. just come out of your mouth. We're asking guys whether, well, do you want to take mashed potatoes out or sweet potato <laughs> casserole? And I'm like, we can't even ask you which one you want to take Have out because you're true taking to form. all I'll say this. I'll try a little pumkin pie maybe. All, all right. right. That's you know, nice. So. That's very oh, good. I, I know I'm not even going to – I shouldn't even. But do you put the dollop of Cool Whip on top or no? No, no chance. <laughs> no chance at that, I knew Johnny. the answer. I knew the answer going That's in. low energy food. Low energy. Nick, thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving and good luck Sunday. Thanks, guys. Same to you. Have a great week. I'm telling you, I have more fun sitting next to Nick Casario and talking football, talking non-football. I mean, he's he's the best. And, I mean, when I asked whether he would put the Cool Whip on it, just the look on his face was like, dude, seriously? No way. Come on. Now, my pumpkin pie, which I'm not a big fan of pumpkin pie, but if I'm pumpkin pie, I've got to have the dollop of whipped cream. In fact, I, I cover that thing in whipped cream. I'm not a big pumpkin pie fan. Pecan pie, I'm like Coach Cully. All day long. Apple pie, all day long. Cherry or some kind of fruit pie, all day long. Pumpkin Eh, I'm with Landry Locker on this one. I heard Landry talking today about certain foods around Thanksgiving. I'm actually in his corner on a lot of things, which I don't know if that's good, bad, or otherwise. I love Landry. I mean, he's like, he's almost like a little brother in some sense. I mean, he's, he's, I love him. He's great. And his food takes are kind of along the same as mine. There's certain things. Um, and he talked about, I think it was pumpkin spice today. And he's like, it's way overrated. I'm like, absolutely. I can't stand all this pumpkin spice stuff. Not for me. Pumpkin pie, not for me. I think we're having apple pie in the Harris household. All right, enough talk about food. That's going to make me hungry because we're around dinner time. Let's talk about a few things going on in particular, transactions, and it's Wednesday, so there's obviously got to be an injury report, and we're going to look at that. But first, transactions for your Texans, and then we actually have a couple for the Jets too. The Texans have signed the following player, to the active roster from the practice squad, that would be Derek Rivers. And I can't tell you how happy I am for Derek Rivers, considering what he's been through. As a rookie, we were at the Greenbrier. He's going on a kickoff, and he shredded his knee. And he's been battling to get back. I thought he played, for the first time all year, he played the regular season game. And I thought he actually played pretty well the other day. Uh, made his presence known. So Derek Rivers moving up to the active roster. That means Connor Stroud is coming back to the practice squad former linebacker from Boston College. 
Transactions on the Jets' side. Two quarterbacks now added to the COVID-19 listing. That would be both Mike White and Joe Flacco. Now, White, I believe, tested positive, but he's vaccinated, so there's a possibility he can come back if he gets the test. Joe Flacco is not vaccinated, so he's out. Now, it does appear that Zach Wilson was going to start regardless, but I'm thinking that it's going to be Zach Wilson and it's going to be Josh Johnson, and we're not going to see Joe Flacco, Mike White, but we'll see what happens there. All right, we'll get to our injury report for the Texas Jets a little bit later, but those big news for Derek Rivers, which I thought was awesome, and the big news for the Jets quarterback situation, both quarterbacks that have started the last three, four weeks, out, Mike White and Joe Flacco, onto the COVID-19 listing. All right, we get back. Let's learn a little bit more about the Jets. From Ethan Greenberg, senior reporter of the New York Jets, with our good friend D.P. Sue. That's next on Texans All Access. 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 Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter. And I want to remind you people to come check out our Battle Red Bash at Energy Stadium on December 4th. All fans are invited to meet Texans' special guests like Santa Toro and HTC. Yeah, Houston Texans cheerleaders. Enjoy some discounted holiday shopping and enter to win prizes. Visit HoustonTexans.com for more information. It's the Battle Red Bash on December 4th. But we got some things to do before we get to December 4th. And that starts with the New York Jets. So let's learn a little bit more about the Jets from Ethan Greenberg, senior reporter for the New York Jets, who sat down with our good friend, D.P. Sidhu. It's Enemy Sidelines, presented by Microsoft. My guest this week, New York Jets reporter Ethan Greenberg. Ethan, the Jets sitting at 2-8, and eight, just like the Texans. What's the mood like uh, with the fan base? Would you say it's optimism for the future, or is it frustration with the losses? What are things like right now up there in your market? I would say it's almost a, a mix of both because I think what's frustrating for fans is that the team has obviously not done as well as you'd hope it to. Like you said, the Jets are two and eight, but the young players on the team are playing at a very high level, particularly the rookies. Let's start in the second round with wide receiver Elijah Moore. He had a career high, eight catches, 141 yards and a touchdown against the Dolphins last week, including a 62-yard catch and run. He's really come on strong the past couple weeks. And then let's start or let's go to the fourth round. Michael Carter, who just was announced that he's going to miss about two to four weeks with a low grade high ankle sprain, which I don't really know what that means, but I know that it means he's, he's going to miss time. So he's the Jets starting running back and he started to really improve over the past couple weeks. He saw his vision really take that next step. And Robert Sala said these guys might be rookies, but they can't really be playing like them because they have prominent roles with the green and white. And let's go back to the first round. Elijah Vera Tucker has been a starter for this Jets team at left guard from day one. He's an up and coming player on this team and he's been playing well lately. But the frustration comes in when you start at the number two overall pick in Zach Wilson, because he's missed about a month with a PCL sprain and it's up in the air whether or not he will make his return against the Texans in Houston on Sunday. And if not, you would anticipate that it'd be Joe Flacco again, who started against the Dolphins, his first start with the Jets in 2021. And he had a good game. He threw for 291 yards, threw for two touchdowns. He did lose a fumble, but he really 
he really got cleaned on a on a blindside blitz where Brandon Jones, the Dolphins' safety, came free. So I would say it's a mix between frustration and optimism because it's a balance of short term and long term. But that I think is the mood of the fan base, and I think they're starving for a win because that's kind of the temperature of New York fans. Wherever whatever the sport is, whatever the season is, they always are starving for wins. So I think that right there would be a snapshot of what's happening with the fans here in New York. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and you mentioned the frustration at the quarterback. The Jets have had a rotation of quarterbacks. So let's let's just hit the quarterback position right out the gate. You, you mentioned Joe Flacco last week when Robert Sala announced that he was going to be starting over Mike White. You know, what went into that decision? And did Flacco do enough to maintain that role while Zach Wilson stays out with the injury? So the reason why the Jets went with Flacco last week against the Dolphins is because Miami has to offer a lot of different cover zero looks where it's a complex system that for any quarterback, but Joe Flacco is a Super Bowl champion in this league, a Super Bowl MVP. He's seen a lot of football, especially compared to the active quarterbacks on the Jets roster, Zach Wilson, a rookie, Mike White, who's in, who's been in the NFL but his first start came in 2021. He was a fifth round pick in 2018, but he never played in the regular season. So Robert Sala and the staff thought that Joe Flacco would be the best option because what what's going to happen against Miami, which we saw, they're going to crowd the box. You're not going to know who's rushing from where. So Joe Flacco, they thought, would be the best at identifying the defense and getting the ball out to playmakers. And I think that he did do enough to earn the starting job, assuming Zach Wilson is not healthy. I mean, it's been a question, one, whether or not he's healthy. Two, the other thing that Robert Salas talked about is confidence in Zach Wilson, meaning are you confident in your knee that he sprained the PCL sprain against the Patriots about a month ago? Are you confident where you're not second guessing yourself? You don't have to think about like, you don't have to think about it. You can just be free. You can go out and play football. What the Jets love about Zach Wilson dating all the way back to the pre-draft process was his ability to create off platform. So when things break down, he can go out outside of the pocket. He can make something happen. And we saw that when the Jets beat the Titans, ironically, at MetLife Stadium. But is he confident in the knee? I think Robert Sala last week said structurally the knee's getting in a good place. They worked him out pregame before they took on the Dolphins. They're working him out Monday, Tuesday, and then they'll determine whether or not Zach Wilson will be healthy enough to return against the Texans. Yeah, Zach Wilson, you know, obviously you got to see a little bit of him early on before the knee injury. What did you like about what you saw in him and where does he really need to improve? But was there anything about his performance that really stood out to you when you look back on it? I'll start with something that I think he and everybody else in the organization would say he needed to do to take a step as a rookie. And that's, as Robert Sala says, and I'm putting up air quotes, play boring football. So what, what does that exactly mean? It means you don't have to make the splash play all the time. You can just check down. And whenever the receiver's open, even though it might be a little check down to a running back, just, just give them the ball. Let your playmakers do their thing after the catch. And we saw that actually when the Jets beat the Bengals with Mike White, when he threw for over 400 yards, he just took what the defense gave him. I think and Zach Wilson spoke to the media after that game, and he said, that's something that I can do better, and that's something that I think he will do better when he does return. And what's caught my eye, I mean, one, he's mobile. Two, he's a first-year captain, right? He's the number two overall pick. And remember, there was the whole debacle. Was he a captain at BYU his senior year? Was he not? No one knew what to make of it. Well, 
he was a captain from day one for the Jets and the locker room really rallies around him and not to mention just the arm talent. I mean, Zach Wilson against Tennessee, the throw that stood out to me is he rolls out right. He just kind of flicks the ball on the run. It goes 50 plus yards in the air to Keelan Cole. And that was a game changing play for the Jets at that time. Later on in the game, Zach Wilson takes him off the fastball and he throws kind of a lob pass to Keelan Cole again on a third and two crunch time play in overtime that set up the Jets to win. So I think Zach Wilson has all the tools, right? We, we saw that in the pre-draft process. It was evident in training camp. It was evident in the first part of the season. The biggest step for him is just going to be playing within the system, which will then allow him to make plays outside of the structure and make those chunk gains down the field. All right. One more quarterback question, and then I'll move on. But what about Mike White? He was such a fan favorite, threw for over 400 yards in his first start, and then gets benched uh, after throwing a bunch of interceptions against Buffalo. Have we seen the last of him this year? Do you see any situation where Mike White takes the field again? It seemed like there was a lot of excitement around uh, his performance early on. Well, the Jets are very bullish on Mike White. And whether or not that means start uh, as a starter down the road, like with the Jets, if injury presents itself, whether that means as a backup, I think that's to be determined. But Robert Sala was very clear that the Jets very much believe in Mike White as a quarterback. They very much believe him, believe in him as a person. And you saw the reaction. You kind of mentioned it. The players really rally around Mike White, kind of like they rally around Zach Wilson. And the Bengals game was amazing, right? And I, I think when he played against Indianapolis, the Jets go three and out his second drive. He comes in the game again. He leads the Jets down the field. And this was a primetime game. So everyone is really like, oh, what, what is Mike White? First of all, who is he? Second of all, what is he? Is he a good player? Was it a flash in the pan against the Bengals? And we didn't really get the answer to that because he only played two drives. Then what happens against Buffalo? Obviously, to your point, he throws four interceptions and then he plays or then the Jets have the Dolphins that offer a complex look on defense. And the Jets brought in Joe Flacco for a reason. They traded for him before the deadline and they wanted a veteran presence in this room. One to four guys like Mike White and Zach Wilson, two for situations to give them a chance to win on Sundays. And that's why Joe Flacco was in the game this past Sunday. So I don't think we've seen the last of Mike White, but to what extent I, I think that's a, that's like kind of a Chris, uh, an eight ball question, right? Like where you got to shake it up and you got to look in, in the future. And I think that's tough to tell because I think that the Jets really do like Mike White, but obviously Zach Wilson is the future of this franchise and he was drafted at number two overall for a reason. All right. You mentioned uh, wide receiver Elijah Moore, the rookie. He's had uh, five touchdowns in five games and just off to a tremendous start, no matter really who's throwing him the ball, no matter who's uh, under center at quarterback. But for people that haven't seen much of Moore, what does he do well in that passing game? What really are some of his attributes as a receiver? His best attribute is just getting open. He's really quick. And when you, when you see him, right, he's not your, I would say, stereotypical 6'4", 220-pound wide receiver that just he's going to body people on the outside. That's not his game. His game is he gets open in tight windows. He makes you miss, and he's got speed to burn. He runs a 4'3", The Jets really liked him coming out of Ole Miss. And actually when they traded up in the first round to draft Elijah Vera Tucker, they were, they were obviously excited for AVT, but in the back of their minds, they were a little upset because they were thinking, man, like at 23, we probably, you know, maybe Elijah would have been on the board at 23 overall, which is where the jets were, let alone at 34, where they actually took him in the second round. So the jets are very excited about him. And 
he's a, how would, how did Robert Sala describe him? A jitterbug. He's quick. He gets open. I know I've said that a lot, but I think really what you got to be aware of, not only do you have to be aware of him getting open on short and intermediate routes and taking it a couple more yards down the field. He also gets open and he gets vertical. I mean, his first training camp reception was a deep pass from Zach Wilson down the sideline. And Elijah Moore, he's got a veteran presence around about him. And I think that you really got to watch out for him on Sunday. And if you were to compare his game to somebody, I, I'm not saying that they're the same player or they'll have the same career, but this guy was a jet years ago. Santonio Holmes is kind of similar. He's not your, your biggest receiver, but he's quick. He gets open and he just makes plays. And so far, that's what Elijah Moore has been for the Jets. All right. When the Jets hired Robert Sala, I think there was a lot of expectation that the defense would get better. And certainly as Texans fans and, and, and people here know, he was with the Texans for a number of years on the coaching staff. So with that being said, the, the Jets defense is giving up 414 yards um, on average, and they're giving up uh, a league high of 32 points a game. So what is the biggest issue that's really ailing this Jets defense this year? Is it just a lot of young players? Is it chemistry? You know, is there is there one or two things that you can really point your finger to as to why this this defense is, is really struggling this year? Well, the defense took a step in the right direction against the Dolphins. But before that, I mean, after the bye week, the Jets were allowing an average of 45 points per game. And I think the biggest thing which anybody will tell you is in this defense that is coached or coordinated by Jeff Ulbrich, and obviously Robert, it has Robert Sala influences weave throughout, it's really limiting the explosive plays. And that's what broke the Jets this past Sunday against the Dolphins. Matt Collins had a 65-yard touchdown. The Dolphins go up 14-7. to They never regained a lead, meaning the Jets. So really, that's the focal point for this Jets defense is limit explosive plays. And what the defense defines as an explosive play is passing plays that go, I believe, over 17 yards or 20 yards and rushes that go over 12 to 15. So those are really the the focal points for the Jets defense. And the Jets lately have not been great against the run. The defensive line is the strength of this group. It's strength in numbers. It's strength in personnel, obviously led by Quinn and Williams. Then you think about guys like Sheldon Franklin, John Franklin Myers. One guy that I have my eye on, he's on injured reserve right now. But Bryce Huff was expected to return against the Texans. We'll see whether or not that actually happens. The Jets like him a lot. He's a second-year player out of Memphis who was undrafted last season. So I think that stopping the run and limiting explosive plays, those would be the two areas where I, I think, and also where C.J. Mosley, who is one of the captains of this team, said those are the two areas where the Jets need to really tighten the screws, and then they'll be able to play a little more free. All right, we get back. We'll go around the NFL. A few news items we need to hit. We'll do that next on Texans All Access. I know it's Thanksgiving week and weekend, and there's going to be a lot of turkey eaten, but I'm going to encourage you at some point, get on over to see my friends at Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers. Freddy's is all about the good and creating more of it, more drive through celebrations, more road trips around the block, more family dinners and lunches, more car picnics and desserts, maybe even more second desserts, more being together as much as we can. With 17 area locations in the Houston area, Freddy's keeps the good going with the taste that brings you back. I know they will see me during this Thanksgiving holiday season for sure. And who am I? I'm John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter, and your host 
for this evening. I mentioned we get to some news from around the NFL. Let's keep it with two teams that are going to face each other on Sunday, that being the Texans and the New York Jets. And look at the injury report from both sides. Now, the Texans had four players that did not participate. Two not injury-related, I guess, is rest. Danny Amendola, Brandon Cooks. And then two with illness, Davion Davis, Lonnie Johnson. Uh, They were DNPs today at practice. Also in the limited category, Rex Burkhead, not injury-related. Hoping that's just a rest day for Rex. Also limited, Jonathan Grenard with the foot, Kamu Grugier-Hill with the knee, and A.J. Moore with the back. And when I saw Kamu on there, I was like, wait, what? And then I remembered, in the game against Tennessee early on, he kind of was a little a little gimpy at one point coming off. Like, there was a little hitch in his giddy-up, and I thought, oh, no. Now, he played through it and was okay, but obviously, over time, the weekend, a uh, few days, yeah, maybe some soreness sets in, maybe... Uh, some other things set in, so hopefully Combo's going to be okay to come back and play. And obviously, we need both Jonathan and A.J. Moore. Uh, Jonathan with a foot, A.J. Moore dealing with the back. Hopefully, they can make it back. Now, for the Jets, did not participate is running back Michael Carter. Rookie running back Michael Carter. Now, the running back is the key because they also have a rookie Michael Carter defensive back. We talked about that with Nick Casario, too. It's kind of an uh, odd situation. They drafted two Michael Carters, both of them from the state of North Carolina. Uh, Colleges, that is. Michael Carter sprained his ankle last week. The thought is that he's going to be out two to four weeks. So he's not going to play, but there's a possibility of getting him back so they don't want to put him on injured reserve. So he's a DNP dealing with that ankle. Limited participants, Corey Davis dealing with the groin. Uh, Folo Fadukasi is with a foot. Shaq Lawson deal with a wrist. C.J. Mosley has been dealing with a shoulder, although I did play last week. And Nathan Shepard, an elbow. Now, those last four guys are key on their front seven. Those guys get after it up front. Everywhere else, there are some question marks. There are some big-time question marks, especially with the injury to Michael Carter at running back, the COVID situation with Flacco and with Mike White. The secondary has kind of been a revolving door, what they have there. But up front, Fadakasi, Lawson, Nathan Shepard, those guys, uh, they can get after it up front. Quentin Williams, you throw him in the mix. Obviously, C.J. Mosley is the guy who kind of keeps everything together in the middle. So keep an eye on those guys. My guess is they'll be ready to go on Sunday, but worth keeping an eye on because they are on the injury report, no doubt. All right, it's a Wednesday, so that means a little where are they now. So let's talk to Glover Quinn, who chatted with Drew Doherty. That's coming up next right here on Texans All Access. We got one hour down, one hour left to go right here on Texans All Access, a Wednesday edition. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst. And I want to remind you to register kids ages 12 and under to become a Toros Kids Club member for free, F-R-E-E, and submit their holiday wish list for their chance to be granted at least one item off their list from Santa Toro. Learn more at HoustonTexans.com. Dot com. Santa Toro better be good to his pal, John Harris. I know that. Now, Santa Toro, I know you're listening. A win against the Jets on Sunday. That's my wish list. Can you make that happen? I certainly hope that you can. Now, the Texans got a win last week, and back in the 09, 10, 11, 12 years, the Texans got a lot of good wins, and they got a lot of those good wins 
with the help of a young man who played safety for them at the time, turned himself into a really good safety, moved on to Detroit, got to the Pro Bowl. His name is Glover Quinn. He sat down with Drew Doherty a little Wednesday. Where are they now with Drew Doherty? It's Glover Quinn. Get ready, folks. We got a good one. This is a Where Are They Now featuring former Houston Texans defensive back and a pro bowler in the NFL, Glover Quinn. One of your nicknames was GQ. Glover, it's great to be with you, man. Where are you these days? What's going on? Man, what's good, man? I'm I'm in the city, man. I'm I'm in Houston. Well, I'm kind of outside the city. I live out in uh, Richmond, Rosenberg area. But yeah, man, I'm here. I'm in I'm in Texas. What are you doing these days? You know, sometimes when people ask me that question, I kind of respond with like, man, I kind of do whatever I want to do right now. But to be a little more specific, I'm, I'm, I'm coaching my son's sixth grade football team. And so I'm doing that and being a full-time parent, dad. And I take photos. I've really uh, gotten into that. I love, I love taking photos. That's about it. Yeah, and you say this all very casually, but you're not a casual football coach because <laughs> as we were setting the shot up, you had game film on in the brand. You're breaking down film, man. Like, how serious do you take it? It's hard not to take the same approaches as I had when I was playing. I watched film for so many years, and you learn so much when you watch the film. You know, there's so many things that happen that you really don't know in the game. And so for me, I record all of our games. You know, I'm coaching and recording at the same time. <laughs> That's the biggest thing for me is, you know, yeah, you want to win, but I've told our guys that. I'm more concerned about them being good football players in the future. You know, it's fun to hear this. I've done this this interview now with a lot of your former teammates, you know, and then we talk about other former teammates that I haven't had a chance to catch up with, but you, Joel Dreesen, Kevin Walter, Brian Cushing, and I know there's others, but those are the ones that I know for sure. Y'all are all coaching. You know, some of it's flag football. You're, you're coaching some tackle football. It's November now, and you said off camera, you guys are in the playoffs. How much growth have you seen from when you guys started probably in August, early September? Because, I, I mean, I've got kids too, and they play soccer, they play flag football, and it's amazing what they can do now versus, you know, they could barely line up in, in, in the summertime. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's, it's, it's light years. So to see these guys now, the way they're playing, is is light years. It's night and day, and it's, it's actually really fun to watch them play. That's great. Happy for you, man. That's awesome to hear. All right, let's go back light years in your life. Let's go. Okay, you're a Macomb, Mississippi native. That's home. Now Houston's a, a second home or, you know, your home now. Right. But you, before you get to the University of New Mexico, you have a stop at junior college. Now, mm-hmm. I talked about junior college ball with Zach Dials when I did this about a month ago. And we've heard Jonathan Joseph talk about what he gained from playing Juco ball. And J. Joe said, if you can make it out of a, a junior college and go on and play you know, D1 school, and then make it to the NFL, you are made of steel, basically. What did you take from your junior college experience? Because Zach had a great, great story or two or three as well. I'm sure you've got a zillion. I mean, Juco ball is tough. You know, I mean, I don't know if people have watched it. You know, they got the the, the series on Netflix, The Last Chance You stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's that's real life. That That is real life when it comes to Juco ball. And like what all the other guys said, if you can make it out of Juco, you know, you can definitely give yourself a shot because it's difficult and it's so competitive and it's so cutthroat because you only have those two years. You know, building good teams is tough because you got new guys 
every year, right? And then, like I said, you're trying to get out of there. They're trying to come in and get out. So the coaches are making it very difficult so they can weed through guys. And, you know, the conditions of living aren't great. You know, you're living in dorms and, the you know, it's just – it's just not great. You see some real life stories in JUCO, guys that are really talented but can't put it all together, but they get so many opportunities because they're super talented. You see the guys who are, you know, not as talented, but they they know how to play and, you know, they they, they find a way to make things happen. But, you know, when I was in JUCO, all the, all the guys, you know, they used to always ask me, like, why I was in JUCO? They used to always say, man, you're a D1 player, man. Why are you in JUCO? They, they thought I didn't have grades. I was like, nah, dude, I was I was actually pretty smart. You know, I had grades. Uh, I, said, I just didn't get recruited like that in high school. I didn't go to a big high school. I was getting recruited pretty hard by Mississippi State. I was pretty sold. I wanted to go there. That was the year that uh, Jackie Sherrill left and Sylvester Croom came in. So Croom's staff didn't uh, recruit me, and so I didn't get to go there. You kind of got caught in limbo, basically, huh? Yeah, I kind of got caught in that in that limbo. Yeah, how'd you get to New Mexico from there? Because, I I mean, you talked about the, the different types of guys. You were clearly the guy who had the talent, but you also had the, the know-where-to-be, know-what-to-do aspect. I imagine you were a pretty attractive recruit. What made you choose the Lobos, though? So for the University of New Mexico, you know, they're in the Mountain West. And, you know, back when I was at the University of New Mexico, the Mountain West had schools like BYU was in our conference, mm-hmm. Utah was in our conference, TCU was in our conference, some of those bigger, tougher schools, right? And so New Mexico, kind of in the middle, right? You, you, you're in between Texas and Arizona, California. The, the major recruits in those areas, they're going to go to – you know, some of the bigger schools, they really had to focus on Mississippi Juco, Mississippi, Kansas Juco, because they needed players that could come in now and be ready to play. That's kind of how the Juco came on their radar. When they came down to Southwest my year, they had just had three uh, corners that were seniors. They were in need for a corner. Like I said, I was a qualifier out of high school, right? So I could leave anytime, mid-year. But I also was graduating. Played. And they didn't have to worry about anything academically with you, too. Like, Right. You know, I guess I checked all the boxes that they that they needed me to check. That was the only one I had. I went out there on a visit. The visit was cool. The city was cool. I was like, man, I didn't even know this place existed out here. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's um, different than Mississippi. That's for, It's different yeah. than anything else. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But it was super cool, man. And- we started this off. So you're a decade in the NFL. You played safety in the NFL. But you just mentioned, hey, I, I was playing corner. And you played two years of corner in the NFL. You were a darn good cornerback. You were good enough to get drafted in the fourth round as a cornerback by the Texans. Let's go ahead to draft day, or draft weekend, rather. What was that like for you? You're in the fourth round, so you got to know, hey, I'm somebody's got to pick me, right? You, you, you thought you were going to get picked. And I think as a fourth rounder, you're probably thinking, well, I should have gone in the first, the second, third. Yeah, I should have gone <laughs> higher. Because everybody's like that, right? I mean, what was that whole weekend experience like for you? You know, I heard everything from late second to six or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people questioned my uh, my speed. Can I run and can I play corner in the NFL? And a lot of people felt like I was a tweener. They didn't. They was like, well, he's, he's a corner, but I think he's a safety. Is he? You know. So, but I had heard all types of stuff. I've heard. Certain teams that ran the cover two scheme and thought I could be a t- cover two corner and all these different things. So I only had one private workout with uh, New England. Nick Casario came and uh, worked us out. He was throwing the ball, I bet. 
<laughs> yeah, he worked he worked me in our other corner out at the University of New Mexico. And I had one official visit, Atlanta Falcons. Okay. Went out there with a bunch of with a bunch of guys. Atlanta actually drafted a bunch of the guys that was on the visit with me. And I hadn't really heard anything from Houston. Perry Carter was a coach, obviously, when I got there. Yeah. And so Perry is from the same area that I'm from. So he's from Magnolia. I'm from Summit. We, Macomb is kind of in the middle. I was born in Macomb. It's the hospital. It's a small town. Gotcha. Um, it's all basically right there together. Perry used to call me every now and then and just see what I was doing, asking me if I was, you know, if they took me, would I be, you know, scared, all these type of things, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I didn't really, I didn't have any um, conversations or anything with the Texans. At the combine, at East-West game, and the East-West game was actually in Houston that year. Oh, yeah, um, that's right, yeah. So that Saturday, we had a, you know, family gathering. A lot of people came out. You know, and I think on that Saturday, they was only doing first, second, and third round that, that year. And so I knew it would be a long shot for the first day. You know, I ha- I didn't have any first round projections, and I only had, like, saw a couple of little articles that, you know, second round. So we did, like, the family gathering on that Saturday. Go to bed. I watched it. I watched the draft up to that, the end. And Sunday morning, you know, I wake up. I couldn't really sleep. Got on the video game. And so then the draft comes. And so now I'm watching the draft. I go through the third round. And so the Texans make their pick in the third round. I think they drafted uh, Antoine Caldwell in the third round. Mm-hmm. And so after they drafted him, you know, I get a call from Perry Carter. He's like, what's up, man? And, you know, he's just talking to me. And, and Perry, um, for those that don't remember, Perry was the assistant DB's assistant coach. coach. Yeah. Gibbs right. was uh, Gibbs was the, the defensive backs coach. Right. And Perry was and, there. Uh, Ray Rhodes Ray was helping Rhodes out. Was yeah. Perry yeah. and Ray Rhodes were really tight. Yeah. And yeah. Ray Rhodes, of course, you know, he's been around forever, knows everything. Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Has forgotten more football than most of us will ever know. Yeah. And, and so, so Perry calls me and, you know, he's asked me all types of questions, asked me if I was healthy and all this stuff. Hey, man, if we draft you now, you ain't going to be scared to come in and, like, you know, compete and cover guys like Andre and, you know, you ain't gonna be starstruck and all that stuff. I'm like, nah, man, I'm ready to go, P. Like, you know, we thinking about taking you with our fourth round pick. And this was right after they had had a third round picks. And I'm just like, hey, all right, cool, man. So now I gotta know I gotta wait a whole nother round. Get out the phone. I, I was told my people, yeah, that was a Texas. You know, he said they said they was thinking about taking with their fourth round pick. And so we're sitting there. It was my, it was me, my dad, my sister, best friend, my girlfriend. The third round go by, and I didn't hear from any other teams. Like, nobody called me. Nobody said anything. The, the pick start coming up. I was like, okay, the Texans got the 112 pick. And I was like, oh, and they got the 122nd pick. I'm like, oh, heck, man. I got two picks in the fourth round. I'm like, man, I hope they take me with the first one. Like, I'm tired of sitting here waiting. <laughs> and so now the Texans are on the clock, and I hadn't heard nothing else from the Texans since. I'm like, oh, heck, man, it's probably going to be the, the 122nd pick. And my phone started going off, and I look at it, and it was like an 832 number. I was like, oh, snap. So I answer it, and it was Brian Gardner. Was he was Brian up in the sc- He was high up in the scouting department. Yeah, yeah he, he called me and told me that they wanted that they were going to draft me in the uh, in the in the in with their 112 pick. And I was just like, a celebration, wow, basically. Yeah, it's a huge celebration. You know, I get on the phone, Gary Kubiak, I get on the phone. I think Frank Bush, the D coordinator, he yep. got on the phone. But I'm on the phone with them and I'm still trying to look at the TV so I can actually see it happen, see my name on the TV because. 
they weren't I don't think they were announcing the fourth round picks at that time. You know, they just kind of flashed the, the pick is in and the kind of flash at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so I saw my name in this, you know, celebration at my house. And I literally remember nothing that they said on the phone. I don't remember one single thing that they said. You're just too happy, huh? But I was happy. You know, I was happy. I had got drafted to Houston. And I I actually loved the city of Houston even before I got drafted here because I used to come out here a lot as a kid to go to Astros games. Okay. And so um, I had fell in love with the city already. And I already. Time out, time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Who was your favorite Astros player when you'd come to those games? Oh, I was a uh, Craig Bgo and Jeff Bagwell fan. All right, all right. Those, so you're the killer bees area. My, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are my guys. They're good, good and ones so, to have. Hall of Famers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so, um, yeah. So when I got drafted out here, it was just kind of like, wow, this is a match made in heaven. I already wanted to be out here, and I got drafted, so it was cool. And so then it just was crazy from then on out. Bunch of phone calls, radio interviews, people just blowing my phone up. All day, uh, Coach Kubiak didn't. Uh, he didn't do uh, rookie mini camps. He didn't. He didn't believe in the rookie mini camps, which I, I really do like his approach. So when I came out, it was OTAs. So I got drafted April twenty sixth. Threw you right into the fire. Yeah. So what was that like when you get to OTAs and you got to line up and you got to cover somebody like Andre Johnson? Did you have to line up and cover Andre Johnson or me? Did they? I kid you not. Jacoby Jones. The first day. The first day. The very first day. Because the Texans drafted me to be the nickel cornerback. They didn't draft me to be like an outside guy. They had Dante Robinson. Right. They drafted me to be the inside guy because they like, you know, my physical ability. They knew I could tackle all those different things. Right. So that's what they wanted me to play. But I didn't play on the inside in college. Hmm. So when I got to Houston, you know, we get there on that Sunday. Right. So then we had rookie meetings. And so coaches, Coach Gibbs is trying to, like, install some of the defense so we can kind of have an idea because we had practice on Monday. We had physical Sunday night. And we had practice on Monday, OTAs. It's amazing. And so we go, we, I'm trying to learn some of this stuff. And so the first day, the very first day, you know, I go out there, they had me starting at the nickel. So when they called nickel defense, I'm literally running out there on the field. I'm lined up in front of Andre Johnson. The craziest thing ever, man. Right. Um, and y'all, and aren't in pa- could, y'all aren't in pads, though, are you? It's just no, helmets. Or, pads. It's yeah. helmets and T-shirts. You know? Yeah. But all I can remember when I'm lined up on Andre is Perry Carter being like, hey, you ain't going to be scared if you got to line up against Andre Johnson, right? You go, And I'm sitting there the whole time just like, oh, man, I got to go. I got to like. But I didn't even really know the plays. I didn't really know what I was doing. I had never played on the inside at all, man. So. Needless to say, my first day of practice really wasn't very good. And you got Andre, you got Andre at his absolute peak. I mean, yeah. 09, yeah. 10, 11, 12. Yeah. That's when he was yeah. Andre. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. My first my first day of practice really, really wasn't very good um, on the inside. Man, I was lost. I was spent around. I was like, man, it was moving crazy. Glover brings up a really interesting point. And I think it's one that a lot of times I have to step back myself when I start doing draft analysis and I'm thinking about guys, oh, yeah, I think this guy could transition inside, no problem, et cetera. Man, it's a whole different world making a position transition. 
whether you're going from guard to center or from guard to tackle, or you're going from outside corner to inside slot, you're going from safety to corner, corner to safety, you're making some sort of position transition. Man, it's not as easy as everybody wants to say it is. And Lonnie Johnson's gone through that, and it's not very easy. Now, Glover Quinn did make those adjustments, but he eventually moved back to safety and became a really good safety in his time in the NFL. We got more with Glover coming up next on Texans All Access. We're going to get right back to it with Glover Quinn, who was nice enough to join Drew Doherty, give us a little where are they now and what he's doing and talking about his time with the Texans, etc. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But a reminder that my friends at Mattress Firm are hooking you up. And you got to make this happen fast. This season, Mattress Firm is giving away two tickets, custom jerseys, Trasco's club passes, and parking to two lucky fans each week. Visit HoustonTexas.com slash DreamBigExperience to enter to win. That's a big one. That is a massive one. A big thanks to our friends over at Mattress Firm, the official mattress retailer of your Houston Texans. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Where are they now? Drew Doherty and Glover Quinn, former Texans safety, as he tells us what the first few days of OTAs were like playing on both the inside and the outside. Glover? OTAs uh, turned around for him. I made a bunch of plays. I think I caught I think I caught three picks in like the first two or three days, you know, because I was catching picks on the outside. Yeah. As a as a corner. Now on the inside. On the inside, I was playing awful, but on the outside, I was catching picks. And I think I ended up catching like five picks in those OTAs. It was an interesting year, 2009. You know, the team finally wins nine games for the first time. Defensively, it was a bit of a struggle there early. Some things got kind of jiggled and fixed and had a good good rest of the season and then 10 you know it was it was tough but you were clearly a building block you were clearly somebody that could play and was going to contribute to this team what was 09 like as a whole for you because you're bringing up OTAs and seeing Andre Johnson for the first time but you get some picks that season I mean you, you help that defense do some pretty good things and you help the the team as a whole yeah, 09 was 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 really crazy, man. Because like I said, I think back to think back to opening day. You know, we're playing the Jets. Yeah, and we got beat. I was on the inside. I think I played 17 plays that game, and it was tough in there. Came back week two. We played uh, Tennessee Titans. It's one of the greatest games I've ever seen. I mean, you guys down there. <laughs> physically, you fist fought. You fought them. I mean, yeah. and it went back and forth. It was a great yes. game. Yeah. Went down there and we and we won, but we didn't play like great. You know, I think Chris Johnson had a couple like 98, 92 yard touchdown runs. And there were a couple um, plays where you were nobody was even guarding it. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. saying it was your guy to guard, you right. know, but he was just out there and like they yeah, anyways. But I had played pretty solid in the inside, right? Mm-hmm. So then we came back the third week against um Jacksonville. It was a little different. I only played nine plays that game. I got that start against Oakland in week four. You know, Oakland had just drafted Darius Hayward Bay, fastest guy in the in the combine. They had Jamarcus Russell from, I think, the year before, quarterback that can throw at the farthest. Yeah, and that's what they matched me up on, Darius Hayward Bay. So I'm going into that game like, okay, I'm the slow, fat DB matched up against this 
fast, the fastest guy at corner with the big arm, Jamarcus Russell. So I said, you know what? I know I can tackle. I'm not going to let him run past me and, and, and catch a deep ball. I think he might have had two catches for like 20 yards that game, little curl routes. Mm-hmm. I had like seven tackles, like two TFLs, a couple big hits. You know what I'm saying? Like playing my responsibility exactly how, you know, I was supposed to. And boom. It just went from there. The next week, playing Arizona, I think we went out there. Me and Jock was kind of rotating a little bit. I would start, but Jock would come in, and then I would go back in. And then I think after we played Cincinnati, they was like, hey, you starting all the time. Yeah. And that was it. You know, it was a crazy year. We we ended up, I think it was five and seven at one point. Well, yeah, because you, you guys go up to – it was Halloween weekend. You go up to yeah. Buffalo, you'll win. You go to mm-hmm. five and three, and you're going mm-hmm. into the bye, five and three. And then you guys come out of the bye, you lose four, and then you lose win four. the final four. And Arian yeah. Foster emerges at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was it was a bananas bananas season for sure. Crazy. And like you win on that final day, and it's a noon game, and the game's over, and you guys still are technically in playoff position. Like if mm-hmm. some stuff falls y'all's way, it was a fun season. And then the next year, you you start the whole way through. You play solid. But it was a yeah. tough year for the defense. Tough I mean, it just you lose yeah. all those games. What was it like in eleven when Wade comes in and moves you from you're a solid corner, but moves you to a position in which you would wind up just flourishing? I mean, gosh, Glover, you you finished your career with twenty four interceptions. I mean, that's a lot. What was yeah. it like when he comes in and makes that change for you? How how excited were you? How cautious were you? What did it? What was that like? I mean, I was I was excited because I always had the personality of a safety. Yeah, you know, safeties are the guys on the field that make the calls, that communicate. Corners don't really make calls. Corners just c- kind of cover their guys. They don't really, you know, you get some of them that are smart, but a lot of corners don't really know a lot or care about a lot. They just know, hey, I'm in man to man. Hey, I'm in cover three. I'm in cover two. Right? They don't have a ton of stuff. But safeties, you know, they're they're the ones making all the adjustments. They're making the calls. They're getting everybody lined up. And I always had that personality. So when I was even when I was at corner. I would want to make calls, but I couldn't because for one, I was young. And for two, yeah. I wasn't the safety. So I would be like looking at the safety, like, bro, you're going to make this call. Like, can you not see this right here? Like, can you not see what I'm seeing right now? Make the call. How tough you was know? that? No, that was tough. That yeah. was tough. With Wade coming in, you know, I kind of felt like it was also an even playing field, right? We were all yeah. learning the defense. It wasn't like somebody had been there and knew the system more than me. So I kind of felt like it was, it was even playing field. We had the lockout that year, and so we were able to meet with Wade and them and Vance and all those guys before the lockout, get some information so that we can, like, start. You know, we used to have, like, team functions where we would get together at Rice and, like, you know, Shab and D'Amico and all those guys, and we yeah. would kind of go through our own. We would kind of go through our own, like, OTAs and stuff without the coaches because we was in the lockout year. You know, once the uh, lockout was over with, I think we had drafted J.J. Watt and uh, they signed Jonathan Joseph that year and they signed Danielle Manning that year. Yeah. And so we come that those guys didn't show up until training camp, but they had to miss a couple of days of training camp because Mm -hmm. the deals and stuff didn't get finalized until because of the, the lockout. Right. And we were just kind of learning it. Right. And and Wade's system was pretty cool. It was kind of easy. And and Vance was a great coach and teacher. He's the Vance. Vance is the clearest communicator as far as coaches that I've ever encountered. Yeah. And, and there's been a lot of great communicators, yeah. but, but he's been the clearest. I mean, do you, yeah. you kind of agree Van, with that idea? Yeah. Van, Vance was, Vance was amazing. I, I was like, I learned so much in my career from those two years with Vance and yeah. that I took with me for the rest of my career and coupled it with 
you know, some of the DB coaches I had in Detroit, like it yeah. just, you know, propelled my career, but it started with Vance. He kind of opened, he opened my eyes to a lot of things that we could do in the secondary. But as far as it wasn't vanilla, you make your calls, you got, you got different tools in your toolbox and you got to pull them out at the right time. You know, you got to make the call that you think, you know, is going to help you in that situation. And so Vance was really good at that. So I came back my fourth year and I felt really good my fourth year. You know, I had yeah. a year of safety under my belt. Um, I understood the dime a lot better. I understood what they want me to do. I was I was in my fourth year. You know, I was making a little more money. I hit my escalators and my contracts. I was feeling good in year four. You know, safety, I was playing well, had made a bunch of plays, made a bunch of plays at at the uh, at the dime position. Caught a couple of picks, forced a couple of fumbles, I think, made a couple of sacks. You know, we came out rolling. I think we were 7-0 that year, 6-0, something like that. And then we ended up, you know, we got beat pretty good on Sunday night by uh, Green Bay. Yeah. But you went to 11 and one. You went to 11 and one. Didn't end the way you want, but. We tricked it off, man. I was talking about that like yesterday. I think we tricked it off those last two games. We only needed to win one Mm -hmm. to be, have home field advantage. And we lost to Minnesota in week 16. And then we lost to Indy in week 17. And so now we go from a potential one seed to the three seed. And that way, you know, we had, we had a home game against Cincinnati. But then we had to go to New England in round two as opposed to being the home team and would have had to play Baltimore in the second round because Baltimore went to Denver that year yep. in the freezing cold game, right? But we would have had to play Baltimore. And, yeah, Baltimore was rolling that year. They ended up winning it. But early in that season, we had beat Baltimore like 40-something to You cold-cocked them. You changed their yeah, season. Like, like, they had to have yeah. meetings after yeah. the beating you guys like, gave them, yeah smashed them and so you know we probably would have felt really confident going into that game at home against Baltimore that season ends and you wind up signing with the Lions and in retrospect I mean it's you can't argue it it's it's one of the big mistakes in in Texans franchise histories not getting you back and going the route of Ed Reed how tough was that for you or were you happy to just be going someplace and getting the money in Detroit? But how tough was it to leave some of your teammates behind, a city that you love behind, where you still live here, franchise, et cetera? What was that like for you? It was tough, man. It was um, that was that was a hard time for me because I really wanted to be here. I wanted to be here. Like I said, I lived here, I had a house here, I love the city, great football city. And so I wanted to stay. And, you know, all the way up until you know, I guess for agency, you know, what I was hearing from Rick and those guys that they want to be back. They just never really came to the table, you know. And so I go, um, you know, they started doing like the little tampering window, I think, that year. Mm-hmm. Right? So soon as the tampering window opened up, I guess Detroit calls my agent like 12.05 or whatever, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And they wanted me to come out on a visit. They wanted me to come in. And I was sitting there like, what? Detroit? You know, I'm like, bro, I don't want to freaking go to Detroit. Like, the Texans not calling you guys. And so he was like, well, you know, he's like, well, you know, we just go out there on a visit. You know, maybe, other, you know, somebody will see, like, hey, there's interest from somebody else. Somebody come through with, a, with an offer for you. So I was like, all right, man. So, we, you know, they have my uh, – ticket scheduled so that soon as the um soon as the official free agency opens up i could uh get on the flight because i couldn't fly out there beforehand but soon as uh i think four o'clock eastern time three o'clock houston time hit they called me 
boom, hey, we got you a flight. You're leaving Houston at five something. So they had already kind of communicated. I had my bags and stuff packed. I was just waiting for the official window to open. So I left. I go to the airport, go to Detroit. And like I said, I had no plans of signing with Detroit Lions. You know, I really wanted to sign with Houston. And this was kind of a move to hopefully make Houston come with an offer. But, you know, in retrospect, I, I understood the business of football. And I knew it would be tough for them to sign me because they had just paid J. Joe. They had just paid D-Man. Kareem was a first-rounder. So I'm like, that's a lot of money kind of tied up in the secondary. Yeah. So I kind of knew in order for me to stay, somebody would probably have to go, right? I kind of knew that. And so I get to Detroit. They offer me, you know, a deal. And like I said, I didn't I didn't want to take the deal. You know what I'm saying? I uh, I told my agent, I was like, all right, man. So Detroit made an offer. When Houston didn't want me, I was like, all right, like it, it's a shot to the, to the heart. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, they don't want you. Detroit wants me. I made a decision. I signed with Detroit. And, like, I remember coming back home and, you know, Kareem Jackson's a good friend of mine. You know, he was at my house when I got there. You know, I was freaking crying. And, like, mm. I going, I walked through the airport, you know, when I got back to Houston. Like, I was crying. Like, I'm freaking probably getting emotional right now because, like I said, that was, that was just a shot, right? Like, man, they don't even want me. And well, so, um, some, some people didn't. I mean, a lot of people wanted <laughs> you back. <laughs> A lot, yeah, and I think in history was, has proven that to it was the wrong decision. It was the wrong decision. I've heard a lot of stories. I've yeah. heard a lot of stories, and I get it. What they, what they, you know, I guess they were trying to do because we had made it to the second round of playoffs a couple of years in a row, and from what I heard, they, 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 they felt like they wanted somebody to help get them over the hump, right? So they felt like Ed was a guy that could help get them over the hump. But the thing about it, you got to get back to the top of the hump to get over the hump, right? So you got to play a whole regular season just to get back to the playoffs. And so, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, it ended up working out for me, you know. And, I mean, like you I said, go on, yeah, you go on, you pick off 19 passes just in Detroit. You <laughs> had a hell of a career. I mean, you, you go 10 years, you know, and you wind yeah, up loving I, your, you, you wind up loving the Lions and you make great yeah, memories and I, there. And I, and I think, you know, it ended up being the best decision for me as far as my career, right? Because yeah. I think Detroit, like I said, they wanted me and they wanted to put me in position to like, to make plays. And, and to I lead. Think, right. And to, and to, right. They, they wanted me to be like, I remember Mark Mayhew telling me like, Hey, we want you to like be the start of changing our culture. So mm-hmm. that year they signed me, they signed Reggie Bush. They signed this guy named Jason Jones. It was like, we want you guys to like, be the start of the culture change here so I took that kind of personally but you know the thing that I I thought of was just like you know Detroit put me in positions to lead and to like make plays and I started to feel like you know what if I would have stayed in Houston I think family-wise friend-wise city-wise it would have been like super cool but the star power was powerful there, right? You had J.J. Watt. You had J. Joe. You had, you know, first round in Kareem. You had Andre Johnson. You had so Arian, much star yeah. power. Arian, I don't know. And I, and I came in as a rookie, kind of like a do-bar, right? I'm doing a nickel. I'm doing a dime. I'm kind of just like that that guy that just kind of like, that's the do-bar, right? Yeah. Not, not in a bad way, but that just kind of, the role that I had. And so I kind of felt like if I would have stayed in Houston, I don't know if I would have ever got put in position to be the star, right? I'd have just, I kind of would have been like that role player, but I don't think I would have ever got put in position to be the guy, 
Right. Like right. De- like Detroit put me in position to be the guy. Right. And, you know, so I'm very thankful for Detroit for doing that. And it worked out. You know, I was able to produce and went to a pro you know, bowl. Had some good years, had some good years in Detroit. Yeah. Went to Pro yeah. Bowl, led the league in interceptions. Like, man, how many people in the world can say that they led the NFL in in a seven in a season, man. Seven. Yeah. Jeez. That's crazy. Could have used yeah, that. It was crazy. It was crazy. Glover, I want to keep going with you, but we got to wrap this up, my friend. Which of your Texans teammates from back in the day do you still keep in touch with, still buddies with? What's that like? Who is it? Yeah, I'm still cool with uh, a lot of those guys. I mean, DB guys, really. I'm, yeah, you know, I'm still cool with, with Aaron, obviously. I'm still cool with Kareem and J. Joe. I see Brian Cushing around baseball field with our kids. <laughs> I work out with Andre Johnson every now and then. Yep. Me and Zach, we'll, we'll chat a little bit over social media sometimes. So, yeah, I mean... For the most part, they're cool with most of those guys. You know, me and Shaba chat back and forth yeah. um, on social media. Dan Dan Orlowski played with Dan in Detroit as well. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm cool with I'm cool. Me and Jacoby will chat. I seen Jacoby in the airport one time. You know, we talk a little bit. Coach Jacoby Jones. Coach Jacoby. How yes, about that? Coach Jacoby. Yeah, that's crazy. I love it so, too. Yeah, I mean, those those guys are cool, man. I'm, uh, you know, we see each other. We definitely talk, and like I said, we interact on social media a little bit and. I mean, everybody's busy, man, so it's, it's cool. It is definitely cool when everybody is busy, especially after what we've been through the last uh, 18 to 20 months here. So great stuff from Glover Quinn. Now, Drew Doherty's going to stay with me and give us a little in the lab next to close up shop here on Texans All Access. 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 We got one final segment of this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. I'm John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter, and I am – Shouting out all Houston area teachers. You want to bring a little Texas football to your classrooms? Then sign up for Toro's Math Drills, presented by ConocoPhillips. Toro's Math Drills is a video series designed to help third and fourth graders learn how to tackle math in the classroom. Go to HoustonTexans.com slash Toro's Math Drills to learn more. Yes, all of you teachers out there, you absolutely need it. Now, we also, in this final segment, we got to talk a little Schlumberger Stats Challenge. And our stat tonight is plus one. No, not what you're going to do tomorrow, Thanksgiving. Can everybody have a plus one? No, 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 no. I'm talking about 10 minus nine. As in 10 takeaways minus nine takeaways. That's one. What I mean by that is 10 takeaways in the last two games at Miami, at Tennessee. Four, I'm sorry, eight combined on defense, two on special teams. A.J. Moore, part of both of those. Tremont with a fumble recovery on special teams. That's 10 takeaways in two games versus nine all of 2020. The Texans have 13 interceptions. 13. But 10 takeaways in two games versus nine in the entire season of 2020. That is plus one in two games over the entire season. It's a great stat. I love that stat. And that's brought to you by our friends at Schlumberger. All right, it's time for In the Lab with my friend Drew Doherty. We talked about that Tennessee game and a few other things. So here's a little snippet of our conversation. For the full conversation, go to HoustonTexans.com. Podcast page, find In the Lab, find Vandermeer's View, find Deep Slant. All of our podcasts are there. You can hear the full 
podcast of In the Lab there. But here's a little snippet for you heading into Thanksgiving. We know about the takeaways. You don't have to go too far into that. Ten in the last two games, five in the last one, zero turnovers. Huge. That's that's the main reason you win. Here's some other reasons, though. You're victorious. Okay. One quarterback hit total, zero sacks. Now, David Culley explained some of that away as, hey, we ran the ball 30-plus times. You know, we, we had 38 rush attempts. So when you're running, you're not going to expose your quarterback to hits. But even then... After what we saw at Miami, John, just a total inability to handle the blitz by everyone involved, quarterback, offensive line, running back. I mean, everybody was culpable in that. You know, he got hit nine times. He got sacked five times in that one to do a complete 180 the way they did against a nasty defensive front in that trio of Harold Landry, Jeffrey Simmons, and uh, Danico Autry. And I think Jeffrey Simmons is becoming one of the elite not just defenders and not just defensive line, elite players in the game. Yep. He's going to be a pain in the ass for years to come for the Texans, yeah. for everybody in this division. To do what they did, I don't think has been said enough or emphasized enough. Zero sacks, one quarterback hit. You kept your quarterback clean, man. The irony in some sense was, if you think back three years, we played them 2018 week two. We had gone to New England and yeah. stepped all over ourselves, fumbled in the first play of the game, mm-hmm. lost the game by seven, really frustrated. <clears throat> Went week two to Tennessee, had Will Fuller back. And Fuller and Hopkins were unbelievable in that game. But Blaine Gabbert started for the Titans. They were without their two tackles, Luan and Conklin. And it was like, we should hammer these dudes. Well, they went wildcat with Derrick Henry. They gave Gabbert quick squeeze quick screen throws he didn't hold the ball long they moved the pocket a little bit and I remembered distinctly after the game somebody asked JJ Watt JJ was coming off the two years of injury in 16 17 hey you didn't get a sack today so what's up with that and I wanted literally (laughs) at that point to jump into the media crowd and just go ballistic on somebody because I'm watching it going hey they did everything possible to have Blaine Gabbert not hold the ball and oh by the way they had the lead for most of the game. Yeah. So we were chasing, and they could just stick to that particular game plan for as long as possible. That was they never the fake punt, the fake punt touchdown that gave yes. kind of gave yes. them a cushion, you know? And they gave them a cushion, and they scored a little bit later, and they had that cushion throughout the game. So they never had to, you know, break the glass, you know, in you know, case of emergency. They never had to. And meaning they would have taken Gabbard and have to drop him back and given JJ and everybody an opportunity to get there. So I remembered that. Well, after the game, it's exactly what Mike Vrabel said. He didn't mention 2018, but the way he talked about it was the exact, almost the exact same comment that JJ made after that game in 2018. Like, look, they moved the pocket. They got a lead. They really didn't have to hold the ball that long. And that, that's true. That, that is true. They, they got in that position. But they also established in the first half a, a few drives, and then they were opportunistic. But the fact that Tyrod didn't take any sacks. Now, he took some hits because he ran the ball and made a couple of really nice decisions running the ball. But even on the second touchdown in particular, it's not blocked horribly. Tyrod just saw an opportunity. To, he could get outside of Simmons. And then once he got outside, he had vision, and he also had the opportunity to turn that into a dual-threat play of, I can throw this or I can run it. And he decided to run it, but he could have stepped up in the pocket and found something. 
Um, he just didn't, he really didn't, he didn't have to because he gave himself options by getting outside the pocket. So point being, I thought it was pretty good. Look, it's, it's a step in the right direction, especially against a group that has been so dynamic. And I saw Paul Karski, who covers the Titans from Nashville and does a, a whale of a job. He tweeted this out that the Titans have a hundred going into the game. They had a hundred plus quarterback pressures. Mm-hmm. It was second in the NFL, second in the NFL. And they got just one hit and it wasn't anybody up front. It was Elijah Molden, the safety who it's had remarkable. to come on a blitz. It's yeah, remarkable. That, it's crazy to think about. So that, that progress is exactly what it is. It's progress. And that's, that's what you want to see. Look, they're not smashing people in the mouth, the run game run for 250 or, or even you know hundred at that point, but they're at least holding their own from a pass protection standpoint that week when they didn't see a bunch of zero blitz and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it turned out to be pretty solid performance for that group up front. Yeah. And listen, we're not acting like the Texans just won the Super Bowl, but no. on the same hand, a lot of people have just been like, Oh, well they turned the ball over five times. They had everybody injured. Well, you know what? Those three guys weren't injured and those three yeah. guys didn't, didn't do really much of anything. And think about it. Your only guy who started the season that was playing offensive line as a starter on this offensive line was Titus Howard. Everybody else was yep. either backups or Jimmy Morrissey was a, a Raider this time a month ago, and he's an undrafted yep. rookie. So I can't overstate enough how big a deal that was that they did not let him get hit. Such underrated aspect of that game on Sunday, and hopefully it's going to be that way against the Jets and every other team the rest of this year. By the way, definitely go check out the podcast. I tell a story about rookie center Jimmy Morrissey. You definitely are going to want to hear. It's going to give you a little smile and give you some thought about the rookies that Nick Casario and his staff have brought in here. It's a, it's a pretty good one, so definitely go check that out at our podcast page, HoustonTexans.com. A big thanks to a lot of people today. Mark Vandermeer, Nick Casario, D.P. Sidhu, Ethan Greenberg, Glover Quinn and my man Drew Doherty to my guys back at 610 in the studio. They do a great job. Happy Thanksgiving. Be safe. Enjoy. Share the time with loved ones. And we'll see you again on Friday. Thanks, everybody. And as always, go Texans.